0: The spiritual presence in that altar was so heavy that people, unconsciously—men, women, animals, children—were deviating from their path to, to give it, to give it uh,
1: room. Mm-hmm. Open wide, you ancient gates. Reconstructing faith outside the lines of conventional Christendom. Because you're listening to Jesus in America. Good morning, Sam. How are you doing, buddy? Doing well, man. How are you? Awesome. Well, I'm here in sunny Phoenix, Jesus in America International Podcast Headquarters, talking with my man Sam Henderson in Medford, Oregon. How's the weather there, man? It is 20 degrees and frigid. Awesome. Well, this is my first year in Arizona. I'm absolutely loving winters here in a Midwest guy. I miss the seasons, but I love the I love the balmy temperatures so yeah so we're uh, we're talking uh, we're going to introduce paul watson my friend i've known for about 10 years now and uh so did you get the chance to listen to his interview i did it's a good interview a lot of it's packed full a lot of interesting and thought-provoking stuff yeah so i was up your way in oregon last week with paul watson and a few other friends i was sorry i missed you but i'm looking forward to getting on your turf in medford soon and hopefully soon enough cool awesome so okay so we're we're going to introduce the Paul Watson interview this morning to our our uh, Jesus in America plan uh, Paul Watson has been a friend of mine for 10 years and we've trained together a little bit Um, But I respect him a lot. He's a good brother. Uh, He has a fascinating life story. He was on house arrest at 10 years old with his family and uh, working in unreached people groups in Southeast Asia. Uh, He has grown up in a home uh, where his dad was an internationally respected pioneer of explosive, expansive church planning and disciple making movements. That have seen millions of people baptized, Muslim background people who are following the way of Jesus, following Isa, the Arabic word for Jesus. Now, um, he's been a his father has been a creative pioneer of movements. But it's been fascinating to watch my friend Paul transition, like so many people have, like myself, to say we want to see movements for the gospel in America again so many of us are having to figure out how do we walk in relationship with Western expressions of church, but pioneer new expressions of the gospel in America that take on different cultural forms. And I think Paul's doing that really well. So let's listen to the interview and we'll talk afterwards. Just tell us about you. What was life like growing up for you? Well, um, I was a typical ministry
0: pastor, missionary kid in that I had no part of the decision to be involved in what my dad was doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents, like any good parents, sit you down and say, hey, this is what we're doing, what do you think? But in reality, you have no influence over that. Yeah. I mean, you are just going to go. And so that's what we did. I mean, my parents decided to be missionaries at the age, when I was seven years old, we moved to Hong Kong and then ultimately to Malaysia. My dad's work there, um, started planting underground churches among Muslim background peoples there, it got my family put in under house arrest, so we spent one Christmas under house arrest when I was like ten years old. I like to tell people I was arrested for the first time at the age of ten, and then we were—I was expelled out of my first country at the age of eleven as a political undesirable. And still to this point, I hadn't done anything. You know, it was all because of the decisions of my parents. Then, uh, towards the end of their ministry in Malaysia, they got the phone call from David Garrison, who's like, "Do you want to be a part of this new thing we're trying out, focusing on?" taking the gospel to unreached peoples. And my dad was like, what's that? Because nobody had really talked about unreached peoples. And they were like, okay. And so we began to look at, um, he began to look at unreached peoples and the mission board decided to send him to India. So at this point, here I am turning, I'll turn 12 in country, I believe. Yeah, 12 in country. And I'm still on this journey that I didn't choose any of the yeah, path. Wow. So landed in, landed in, Bangalore stayed in Bangalore for six months, moved up to Delhi for a year, and then the Gulf War happened, which then again I still didn't choose. And the Muslim kids on the street started throwing rocks at my little brother because just because we were Americans, and it's not their fault, it's just the only thing they knew to do. And so they were Americans, or we were Americans, so they were throwing rocks at us. And then the Indian government decided to protest US involvement. They closed the language school, we lost our visa, had to move to Singapore. So now here I am in Singapore, and uh, my dad was to find out that over the next few months that all the men he'd been working with in India, the nationals he trained to go into the villages, were martyred. So he couldn't live in the country. He couldn't work with the people. Nobody had worked with him because he got people killed, even though he was doing things that everyone else was doing. It just happened to be a bad situation. And now I'm in Singapore. And so I... Was homeschooled there for a while. Ended up my sophomore year, the end of my sophomore year, going into the Singapore American School and graduated. And it was towards the end of that, my junior and senior year, that the movement in India really started picking up, you know, I guess throughout my high school. And what that meant was dad spent a lot of time traveling.
1: Yeah.
0: And so he was gone in one year. He was gone like 36 weeks out of the year. You know, traveling internationally. So growing up, I ended up graduating from the Singapore American School. Now, what's really cool is that in that, I found, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus. I accepted Christ when I was very, very young, but I did not lose my uh, faith. I didn't develop that bitterness. I've kind of got this optimistic streak. So I'm like Charlie Brown every time Lucy says, hey, Ch- hey, Charlie, you want to kick the football? I'm the guy that sits there and goes, well, maybe this time's different. And I just like tee off on this football and it keeps getting pulled away. But every time I just trust that, well, maybe she'll make a different choice. And so that's just me. And that's, and I've carried that throughout my ministry. Graduated uh, Singapore American school, went to school, met my wife the weekend before school began. We got married two years later, halfway through school, and we've celebrated 19 years of marriage. So, 19 three,
1: years, three kids, three amazing kids, seven chickens, seven. Wow. Yep. A dog, Blessed and man. a hamster named Blue. So, nice, man. It's good to be back in your home. Yeah. I loved last time I was here, staying with you, and I've missed you, man. Part of our, our podcast audience are people who are seeking to see movements, massive, catalytic transformation. Uh, of communities through the gospel and also reformation of the church in the 21st century in America. Mm -hmm. And one of my uh, theories or beliefs is that what's happening globally, America has been uh, really good at talking to the world, but not very good at listening to the world. That's right. And one of my uh, beliefs is that for reformation and transformation and movements to develop in America, we have to open our ears globally to how God is working in, around the world. Um, give, give us an overview of what, what's happened in India in the last 30 years. Goodness, yeah. We're talking a country, over a billion people, more people groups than any country in the world, uh, significant Hindu, Muslim population population. And, and significant Buddhist population as well, um, depending on where you are in the country. Um, incredibly complex, uh, not historically a Christian nation, other than you know, some first century stuff with Thomas, potentially. But what's happened in India in the last 30 years? Well, I would say that you know, a,
0: a big part of that history is to understand that Christianity came to India brought by a conquering people. And then it was used, the British people, the British Empire. People, the British Empire yeah, mm-hmm. and it was used in many cases, as was all over the world, to rob a people of their indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. Um, if you spend any time among First Nations peoples, then you could see how have, Col- yeah. you have, and and I've started doing it with the peoples around here. Um, I went to the Yakima Nation mm-hmm. and spent time in their cultural center there. Mm-hmm. And over and over again in the walls of the of the nation's cultural center, it tells a story about how Christianity was used to enslave and deculturalize the people. Right, right. And that that is not unique to First Nations. It is actually the way that it is uh, colonialism took and used Christianity all over the world. Yeah, right force people to cut their hair, force them to learn a different language, uh, shove the Bible down their throats without regard for where people are and and helping them learn, you know, all of those kind of things. So India was that way. And so the big thing that we had to do in India when we look at bringing the Bible is how do we bring the gospel in such a way that it's not perceived to be another wave of conquering religion, right? And it's something they've already said no to. We don't want that. We rejected that. In fact, we threw them out, mm-hmm. and we're independent, and so why would we want to go back to that thing? Right. The other thing that had been done is that uh, Western culture and the Bible had been so interwoven that most peoples outside the West couldn't, couldn't pull the two apart. And most Western Christians couldn't pull the two apart either, right. distinguishing between what is our Western culture and what is clear biblical. Yeah, what are clear biblical values? It's yeah. like getting married, and, and you know, where where in the Bible does it tell us how to get married? It doesn't. It really doesn't. Other than we're supposed to have massive amounts of wine, apparently. <laughs> You know, that's really like the only, the only instruction we have for like a wedding is that we're supposed to have massive amounts of wine and we're supposed to save the best for last if we do what Jesus did. Right. So, uh, that's, that's kind of the thing there. And yet when you go overseas and they ask you those questions, you know, how do I get married now that I'm a Christian? We start to tell them how to get married as if they're an American or as if they're British. Whereas in India, if you wear white, white is the color you wear to a funeral. So what woman on the best day of her life is going to dress like she's going to a funeral? And what kind of message does it send that, okay, wait a second, now that you're Christian, you get dressed up to go to a funeral to get married? And you see this cultural disconnect. And so we had to wrestle with that and go, all right, what is the seed of the gospel? And how do we plant that? And then how do we do it in such a way that it can come from within as opposed to being brought in from outside, right, right. Because then, if an Indian was sharing the gospel with another Indian person, then it was more likely
1: to be received than right. if an outsider right. like right. myself was sharing it. Right. Man, I had this uh, challenge when I when I first started journeying with the First Nations people. Uh, I faced this incredible challenge of how do I bring good news to a people that for 450 years have been historically conditioned to associate Christianity with bad things happening. Yeah. And it was this incredible learning season of forcing me to differentiate between what is my Western culture and even my Christian culture and what is the pure essence of the gospel. And that was the only way that people were going to actually experience the good news of Jesus when it was, when it was delivered in a, in the, Purity of its form, separate from my from my culture, and that's that's where the discovery process actually emerged. Okay. Is we were like You're talking about the discovery Bible, the discovery Bible which, study, which just has been used all over the world, hundreds of languages, a simple reproducible way that anybody can gather a group of people, read a story from the Bible from creation to Christ, and not have someone preaching and teaching. But have a, a facilitate an interactive discussion that's safe, no right or wrong answers, where people can begin to discover Jesus for themselves. That's right, that that's the that's a great that's a great uh, summary of it. And the
0: big part of it is that by asking questions instead of giving examples as the outsider, I am minimizing cultural transference. Nice, and I'm also creating an environment where I can learn from them what they're experiencing as they read and encounter uh the bible as the holy spirit begins to speak to them and so it puts me in a posture not of being the expert bringing all the answers but instead of being the question asker the learner and bringing it out of people and it's been amazing once we shut up and start asking questions the amount of stuff that we can learn
1: i've been blown away so many times as someone who has studied the bible loves the bible Love studying mission movements, missiology, church history. I am continually amazed when I sit down with a group of people and do a discovery Bible study or a similar format of like asking questions and what do you see in this story? That they will, people who have never read the Bible before, will see insights where I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I never thought of that. And you start taking notes. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's right. And the best sermons can come from people who are applying it. The other thing is, is the Holy Spirit is working through his word into their lives and pulling things out that we might have not ever guessed they were dealing with. Like we, uh, a a guy that I trained was doing a discovery Bible study with three guys. It was the second one in, so they were discovering, they were discussing the creation of woman. I mean, Mm -hmm. so that, out of Genesis, right? Mm -hmm. And they get to the last guy and they say, well, if you believe this is true... What difference would it make in your life? It was mean, just a simple question, right? And the guy gets, like, all quiet and just kind of stares at the ground. And it gets really uncomfortable. And so the guy, the facilitator, my friend, he kind of prods him and says, so what's going on, man? And, and he goes, well... And he looks up, and his eyes are filling with tears, and he goes, if I believe this is true, I'm going to have to stop paying prostitutes to have sex with me. Wow. And my buddy goes, well, could you help me understand where you found that in the passage? He goes, well, I guess it's not there. And he goes, no, no, no. Something in this passage spoke to you and that's what you got. What did you see? And the young man goes, well, how could I pay anyone who was created in the image of God to have sex with me? You know, this is the second time, as far as I know, other than growing up in a Southern Christian culture, this is the second time he's opened the Bible for himself. And he just had something. I asked my friend who had been a seminary trained pastor, planted a church, did the whole thing. And I said, so did you ever have a sermon where that happened? And he goes, no. He said, I, there was no way under God's earth that I would have guessed that that's how the Holy Spirit was going to work in that man's life.
1: Just in like a couple minutes, what happened in the Bhojapuri movement in northern India? Oh my goodness. So Bhojapuri were called um, the graveyard
0: of missions and missionaries. Mm -hmm. Okay? 180 million people, only 1,000 believers in 27 churches in an area that was the birthplace of Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and it's where Mahatma Gandhi went to start a student revolution that resulted in India's independence from the British monarchy. So Massively important people. Uh, an incredible stronghold with multiple principalities over it. I mean, just crazy stuff. <laughs> um, walking Varanasi today is different from Varanasi back in those days. And still, it's a dark place. Uh, just because Satan can run, just, just have its head. And my dad one time was sitting down in a village, and he's watching... And every time humans got to a particular place in the road, they were just walking. They would literally do a detour and then keep going. And he started watching this, and he started noticing that animals were doing it too. So he's like, what is this? And he walks over, and there's nothing wrong with the road. Nothing wrong, nothing that would, that would stop it. He watches a little bit longer, and they get to that place, and they do like this curve around it. So he looks over, and... And right next to the road is this tree, and right at the base of this tree is this altar. The spiritual presence in that altar was so heavy that people unconsciously, men, women, animals, children, were deviating from their path to, to give it, to give it uh, room, birth, yeah. to give birth. I mean, I could understand the humans doing it because maybe it's a cultural thing and it was like a respect religion thing, but animals, that's kind of odd considering that there's food sitting out there on this altar. So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. This was a scary place. We went in, um, dad did his normal thing, which ultimately failed miserably and resulted in people dying. And he went back to the drawing board and started saying, Lord, how do I do this? actually he said, Lord, send me home. I'm done. I'm too old for this. He was in his thirties. <laughs> I laugh at that now. I'm going too old. What are you talking about? And, uh, and so he ended up, uh, God refused to take his call away. And so dad said, okay, you're going to have to show me something new. And he, it was a lot of things that other people had seen here and there, Roland Allen, these little guys, you know, and even then God was working in other believers across the world, like. George Patterson and some others speaking these same things kind of to them getting them to put it together and dad put it together in a strategy though that was his strength that's what he brought to the table Mm -hmm. was bringing it all together in a cohesive strategy where all the pieces work together instead of working against one another and he began to implement it It, uh, he found one guy who would work with him and so he began it was Victor John and then he John Victor John And a different guy, he met Victor Chowdhury along the way, uh, which is a fun, funny story. We'll tell some other time. And, uh, ultimately they, uh, began to work together and they saw at the end of two years, they failed forward for two years with no fruit until the end of the second year. And I saw something like five or seven churches come up and they were all started by Butch led by Butch not a single one of them were paid for by an American, all of that kind of stuff. Okay. So that was, that was huge. And then, um, the next year that number doubled and the next year it doubled again. And to make a long story short, after 18 years of ministry in India, they saw over 80,000 churches started and, and 2 million people baptized. Wow. And we haven't, I haven't been back to India in a long time and dad hasn't either because they don't need us anymore, which is even better.
1: So tell us the story of contagious disciple making incredible book, one of the best books I've read on multiplication, I have an endorsement in there um, I and we've trained a little bit together Contagious Disciple Making has, if I understand the progression, has moved from uh, the idea uh, or the vision to see movements come to America mm-hmm. and, and beyond um, not just a book, but training resources and a whole, you know, network of Disciples Making Disciples tell, tell the story of Contagious Disciple Making
0: yeah, so For years, I was told by the older generation that someone with my personality type would never be able to lead an organization. Oh my goodness. Years of it. And finally, I'm sitting in the shower crying because God made me broken. And how am I going to do what he's put in my heart? And I just felt him sit there and say, do you not believe that if I've called you, that I also can equip you and empower you to do what I've told you to do? Stop thinking that you're broken and realize that you're made exactly the way I want you to be to do what I've called you to do.
1: That's crazy. And
0: I'm like, and so, and, and I've run into other ENFPs that they sit there and they go, how can I lead? I'm. I'm not organized. I have feelings. I am extroverted and not a thinker and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, guys, first of all, you don't have to have permission. Show me who in the Bible was actually qualified to lead. Nice. I and mean, please just point out one of them that wasn't a complete screw up. Jeez. And if you use what God's given you to do what he's called you to do and you don't have to worry about it. And my organization, because of my hang ups, may never get massive. And that's fine, as long as we see people fall in love with Jesus. I love it. And towards the end of that project, I'm sitting in the boardroom at City Team, uh, which is the organization my father was with, and turned around, and God gave me a vision, mm-hmm. like the southern, which is something Southern Baptist boys don't admit to having very often, because we might lose our Baptist card. Um, but here's no falsehood: Southern Baptist. But he did. I mean, I turned right around, and I saw, I saw all of the events of my life and all my experiences laying out and then all of a sudden they turned into threads and all the threads started coming together and they turned into a single red cord that read that went straight into my chest and I heard God say he said you see all this this is why I've created you. And I knew in that moment that he wanted me to be a disciple maker, to be a church planter. And that was my focus. And it wow. so radically shifted wow. my life. I never had to get up another day and wonder what I was wow. doing that day. In fact, my wife tells me, I called her the next day and she told me my voice had changed. And I promise you, I'd already been through wow. puberty. So <laughs> I was 27. That's supposed to be done, right? And, uh, but that, that changed yeah. everything for me. And so I, it's the first time I'd had my feet set in the U S because even though I'd lived here for a while, I would always traveling internationally, uh-huh. travel hundred thousand miles around the world annually, um, 15 days out of every month I was gone. And even when I was here, I was coaching people through Skype and stuff like that. But when I came to take the job in Portland, they said, you can't travel anymore. We want you to focus. So I finally shut up long enough to start hearing the songs of despair and the cry for Jesus that my own nation was singing, and I got to see it on the streets with the homeless men and women. And then one day, I was my truck broke down. The truck that's sitting outside, twenty-year-old Ford Ranger, you know, came out the year I after I graduated from high school, and uh, you know, it's almost got two hundred thousand miles on it. it. Broke down, and I took the TriMet in from my house to work the, the subway system. And I'm talking to Jesus on the TriMet. It's full because it's rush hour in the morning. And all of a sudden I felt God say to me, he says, you know, Paul, you realize that you're the only follower of me on this train right now. It's like, what? And I started running through the statistics and about how, because I'm a math, I was going, I'm not a math guy, but I was running through the math, seeing if that was even possible. Or if I just imagined this, and I realized statistically it was possible in the Northwest that I could have been the only follower of Christ on that entire train at rush hour going to work. And it blew me away. And I just started praying about that and thinking about that. And then I just felt God say, you know, what are you doing? Why aren't you taking the things that I've taught you, working among the hardest peoples around the world and applying them in the U.S. and Canada? right here in the Pacific Northwest. And then as I started researching Pacific Northwest, it included Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, British Columbia, and Alaska. It included the uh, Latino population, a growing Muslim population, and an enormous Sikh population, Chinese, you know, people who've been here for generations, First Nations peoples, I mean, incredible tribes that, that found their life and existence here historically far before my ancestors came this direction. And I began to toy with that idea and wrestle with it. And that was part of the book. And so that book is that blurry line, I would say. It's so imperfect. When you look back on it, you go, man, I wish I could say this. And I've learned so much since then. But it really was that initial wrestling between my my father and I and the material we had been teaching and training to figure out what does that look like as we start to wrestle with that in a North American context. Mm-hmm. And as God made me aware of this, and I started trying to live it out It created tensions at work because even though I was in my office doing my thing, my mind was outside figuring out how can I work with these other people? And I finally had a moment with my boss where I was just like, Hey, I need to do this. Is there room in the organization? And there wasn't at that time. And so I had to say, well, I need to start my own thing. Yeah. And so some buddies of mine went and we started contagious disciple making. And our whole mission is to focus on the United States and Canada to see people who wouldn't normally come to church, have an opportunity to hear about Jesus and then to form churches or become a part of churches. I don't care either way. And then ultimately to become disciple makers who
1: would cause movements. And we're going to yeah. need to see lots of movements. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Okay. So, um, one of the things that you and I have had significant conversations, uh, about in the previous months is, we're seeing an explosion across the world in unreached people groups of exponentially multiplying movements. I was with, uh, my friend Anna Ruth last night. Yeah. Um, who in the last 10 years has seen churches planted in 26,000 villages, just from his disciples and people he's trained and, and others. and, Many of us are sensing, and interestingly, a lot of us are in our mid, mid-year leadership seasons, in our mm-hmm. 30s, 40s, um, who are sensing the call of Jesus to focus on America. So what are you... T- talk a little bit about what is a church planting movement or a disciple multiplication movement for a listener who's like, yeah, I want to make disciples. I'm following Jesus, but, you know, I go to church, or whatever, just... Share a little bit, like, from your heart, what is a disciple-making movement or a, a church-planting movement? Um, yeah, just through, to me So
0: Dad was in the room when the term church-planting movement was coined, and I was in the room when the term disciple-making movement was coined, so that was kind of interesting. And church-planting movement came out of them just seeing... All this stuff that was resulting in churches planning, churches planning, churches, and they couldn't explain it, couldn't control it. They're like, what do we call it? And they're like, uh, church planning movement. Mm-hmm. And it was never meant to be prescriptive. It was only meant to be descriptive. Uh-huh. This is what we're seeing God do. Well, in typical American fashion, we ended up taking that and making it prescriptive. Everyone should be doing this thing mm-hmm. and it ended up bringing some interesting things to light. First of all, no one knew what they were talking about when they said the word church. So when they approached that term, whatever their experience of church had been, they brought it there. And if they didn't see that, then they were like, well, that's not it. Okay. The other part was in the Bible, it doesn't say go plant churches.
1: That's it right. says make
0: disciples and baptize. That's right. And I can argue that church planting, though, is the baptismal process. But uh, because out of uh, Romans chapter, or was it Corinthians, it says you're baptized into one body. And so it's the establishment of the body of Christ in a local area. But at the same time, it still goes back to making disciples and baptizing. Mm -hmm. So we were like, well, how do we come up with a better term that we know now it's going to be prescriptive that actually describes what we're trying to do? And so we came up with the term uh, disciple-making movement. And I like to say that... Disciple-making movement focuses on our part of the equation, and church-planting movement focuses on the outcome and the fruit that God brings
1: out of our obedience. Okay, so you're saying our job is to make disciples. When we make disciples and baptize, which we have authority to do, the inevitable result is that churches will grow as the result of our prescriptive uh, command to go and make disciples and baptize. Yeah,
0: it'll naturally happen. And so people ask me all the time to say, so... What about the outcome of this? And I go, you know what? That, the outcome the Holy Spirit's job on
1: that one. You know, what are a few key barriers? If you were talking to, let's say, um, uh, a, a, a churchgoer who loves Jesus but is hungry for more, what in their mindset would you speak to to spark them down a path of moving oh. into contagious disciple-making?
0: So I'd look at, right at them and I'd say, you know, I know that you're, that part of your motivation right now is frustration. There's this, I got to get out and do it. And that frustration, if you're not careful, can turn bitter into bitterness against your classical church models that you came from that aren't meeting your needs right now. And if you allow that bitterness to grow, it'll actually become the bear, the biggest barrier between you of movement that you can experience. Wow. So you need to do the that's, hard, that's huge bro. You need to do the yeah. hard work and it's not, you need to do the hard work in your own heart To be able to come to a place of maturity that says, I value and appreciate the things that have gone before, and I love it. I love sitting down to Thanksgiving with them, to celebrate communion, to do baptism, to even preach from time to time. I love that. But God is also calling me out to do these other things. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is to go, and you don't need permission to do the other things. Because God has already given you the great commandments Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gave you the great commission. All authority, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you. Are you
1: saying that all Christians have authority and permission to go make disciples and baptize
0: them. them? You don't have to wait. You do not have to wait. So you love and respect and speak. And, and I ruthlessly I ruthlessly stamp out any hint of bitterness in my own soul regarding the expressions of church. And I've been hurt by church. Anybody who's the son of, anybody who's been a ministry leader's kid has been hurt by church. And, and I, would say, I would say that many people in the United States have been disappointed by various things. But what I had to realize is I need to realize that church is made of people and people are broken like me. And that that bitterness I was experiencing was actually pride taking root that Mm -hmm. I was going to be better. And that what I was going to do was going to be better, which means not broken either. Mm -hmm. It's powerful. And so that had to be rooted out from within me. And then I had to realize I didn't need permission. And this is huge for young people because we always want someone to come alongside and say, hey, buddy, you've got what it takes you can do this. And let me tell you, in most cases that's not ever going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because the per what God wants is he wants to hear you to hear him wrap his arm around you and say, "Hey buddy, you've got this because you have my spirit and you have everything you need to go out and to do the things that I have told you to do."
1: So that's incredible. Well, that, that, that I wasn't expecting that answer, and that is so powerful. And so what I'm hearing you saying, paraphrased, is if someone is wanting to get out of the conventional boundaries of Christendom and move into planting the gospel, making disciples, seeing multiplication, it starts not by criticizing what's wrong with the institution, but by looking at your own heart— Processing that with Jesus and then looking at what our Jesus said, I only do what I see the father doing. Then moving into what is the father doing? And then realizing you have permission from your father in heaven under the authority of of Jesus to go out and to obey the great command and obey the great commission and you go do it.
0: Yep. And then the third thing you do right there is quickly find brothers and sisters who are doing the same Hmm. because you are going to get asked by people who's keeping you accountable? What authority are you under? And I could go into a lot of conversations on that, that I'm not, but your first line of defense are I am connected with some brothers and sisters who are doing this well. And we pray together and encourage one another and love one another. And I also encourage people not to give up if they feel led to continue working in their own churches. Mm -hmm. So I attend a church here locally that is as, traditional as a modern church is we've got 800 to 900 people that are scattered across three campuses multiple services i'm actually a trustee at the church which Mm -hmm. means i'm an elder i baptized in church yesterday and i'm preaching this coming sunday i do that because i'm investing in my local community Mm -hmm. and it's creating pathways now it's creating this loop that I learned things from them that I wouldn't have thought of before because I'm listening to their stories of what they're experiencing with Jesus. And I'm going out and experiencing things and bringing it right back in. And they're listening to my stories. And because we have this environment of mutual respect and high regard, all of us are growing together, which is what God wants the body to be. If I had broken that circle With pride, Mm -hmm. then that would have been bad. If I had broken that circle by not seeking out other believers who are called like me and serving with them, but not cutting off this other side, Uh then that would have been bad too. Now, I'm very careful with my time. 90% of my time is reaching people who are outside of the church, and there's only 10% available for this other. Wow. And that 10% really is to build that community that I need a home base to come to wow. of men and women who will love. So that's, those are the top three things right there. And then I tell people, go get a hobby. <laughs> that's so simple. <laughs> Find something that you love to do or wanted to experience yeah. and go do it. Give yourself permission to try it out for six months. I'm almost having to do more work these days teaching Christians how to be real not jerks. As they engage with people who don't know Jesus, then I am teaching them about the Bible. Totally. They look at me, how do I have a conversation with people who don't know Jesus? And I go, have you ever been to Dutch Bros? they're like, and if they're, depending on where they're at, and I said, "Do do you have a coffee shack locally that like, they're super outgoing and very exciting? Like, yeah. I said, okay, here's your assignment. Every day for the next week, I want you to go in the morning and get a drink. Seriously? I'm like, yeah, I'm giving you permission, okay? And I want you to write down the question that they ask you that gets the conversation going. Nice. And then later that day, I want you to go use that question with someone else. Obviously, if it's just about your coffee... Don't use that one with the woman at the grocery store. But instead, you know, like I go on Friday. How's your coffee? That's right. <laughs> <It> did <laughs> Paul. That's right. Didn't <laughs> work. I go, and I have to be that like open sometimes. I go, no, on Fridays, if you go to Dutch Bros on a Friday, they're going to look at you and say, hey, what kind of awesome things do you have planned this weekend? Do you know, I went, I tested it out. I went to Walmart. Okay. You and went to Walmart. I'm checking out with my groceries. Hopefully
1: not late at night. Right?
0: And I look at the woman like sitting there. It Walmart. was in the afternoon, not, not after 10, <laughs> not after the witching hour. Um, so uh, it was, it was in the afternoon. I look at the woman who's sitting there checking me out on the, on the, you know, my groceries out and everything. And I go, Hey, what kind of things do you have planned for this weekend? And she's like, Oh, well, my kids are coming in and this, and that is happening. and This is, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like. This is not hard. Yeah, you just had to ask the question. The number one skill set for all disciple makers to learn these days, at least in the United States,
1: should be asking questions. Beautiful. That's golden, bro. That is. That's golden. your. That's your base hit. You know, it hit me one time. How many questions God asks of people in the Bible? Right. How many questions Jesus asked of people? I totally agree. You know, one of the things that has occurred to me, you know, in my journey with Jesus is how comfortable Jesus was at a party. He was just as comfortable at a party as he was at the temple. And you you are spot on about teaching Christians just how to be normal again. Stop speaking this obscure subculture language. Stop trying to, like, hit a grand slam and find this, like... You know, all right, I found this guy and I, I preached the gospel to him. Like, yeah, that's great when that happens. But like, can you hang out at a party and have lots of conversations and get to know people and have subsequent gatherings with them and actually do life with people? Because Jesus, God, I mean, God could have, you know, brought the story of the good news anyway, but he chose to become a human and come down and live a life with people and interact with people wearing their clothes, in their context, speaking their language, knowing their hurts, knowing their agrarian economy, knowing the injustice of the system that they were living under religiously, politically, and then begin to teach the kingdom of God in the context of a flow of community, the life and the community that people lived in.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. So one final thing before we go. Do you know why God um, does not... The judgment doesn't happen until the end of time, as opposed to when we die. Why is that? Because our our works continue to bear fruit long after we die, Mm. whether for good or evil. Whoa. So think about Hitler. His works on earth have continued to bear evil that he will be judged for at the end of time. And all those of us who are focused on making disciples and planting churches, at the end of time, those generations of fruit will be counted in our reward. And so you think about it that I I am part of my father's fruit and everything there. And so my dad came to know Jesus because he hit a baseball through the window of a church in Lubbock, Texas. And the pastor picked the baseball up and walked outside. Instead of yelling at my dad, sat down with him on the steps of the church and got to know him. Ultimately led him to Christ and ultimately brought his whole family, a backslidden Jehovah's Witness and a non-practicing Southern Baptist, into the church. And they received Jesus. That pastor of that church, when he gets to heaven gets to have the fruit of my whole Father's ministry and everything that I accomplish and those that He trained accomplishes added to His reward. Now, is that not cool?
1: So awesome. I thought that was incredible. Uh, Paul Watson, uh, if you would like to reach him, you can find him online at ContagiousDiscipleMaking.com. And Paul also—I've never had someone on a podcast do this—but he uh, gave us his cell phone number to pass on. To, well, I know his cell phone number, but wanted um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. to everyone else. his cell phone number uh, for our podcast listeners. Jesus in America, if you would like to reach Paul Watson. Uh, to get coaching or free resources about implementing contagious viral disciple making in your city. You can reach him at 503-621-6111. That's 503-621-6111. And as always, you can uh, find us online at jesusinamerica.org. Sam? pursuing Jesus, lifting weights, discipling people in fitness towards the kingdom of God, my friend. Yeah, that was really good. I'm inspired. All right, man. I'll talk to you Later. soon. All right, bye.